Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in German Studies, a podcast presented by New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Ruby, a PhD candidate studying Germany and Austria in the Department of History at Boston College. And today I'm joined by Dr. Devin Opendis to talk about his latest book. Devin Pendis is a professor of history at Boston College. He's been a guest professor at the Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany, and Meiji University in Tokyo, Japan. He's the author or editor of several books, including The Frankfurt Auschwitz Trial, 1963 to 1965, Genocide History and the Limits of the Law, in addition to Beyond the Racial State, Rethinking Nazi Germany. His most recent book, which we'll be discussing today, is Democracy, Nazi Trials, and Transitional Justice in Germany, 1945 to 1950. This latest work was published in 2020 through Cambridge University Press. Dr. Pendis, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. So I'll start us off by asking, uh, how did you come to this topic? So my first monograph was a history of the Frankfurt Auschwitz trial, which you mentioned in your introduction. Um, And I wasn't really done yet with this question of uh, justice in the Holocaust, but I wanted to, I wanted to go a little bit bigger um, rather than just doing another case study of an individual trial. Uh, and I was reading the secondary literature on post-war Nazi trials and really noticed that there was not all that much written about the early post-war trials in German courts. Obviously, Nuremberg's been done to death, but not very much had been written about the, you know, literally thousands of trials that took place in German courts during the occupation period. So that's really sort of where I, um, I decided, well, I'll start looking into this and see if there's, if there's a book there, because it seems to me like, um, you know, that's a, a, an understudied topic, but B, this question of what's going on during the occupation is really, you know, it's a really interesting period in time because everything's so unsettled as of yet. Right. And so I thought it could be a particularly interesting time period because it's very close to the crimes in question. The political context is very um, discombobulated. And uh, and so and it's not really a question yet of memory in the way that like the trials of the 60s, 70s are. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. It's it's really interesting to see how the the topic kind of lends itself really well to the uh, conceptual intervention conceptual intervention here, right? Which is that of this this notion of liminality, kind of transition, right? So to that point, I would kind of want to ask: How has transitional justice traditionally been conceptualized, especially within the the scholarship of political science? Yeah. So you know, as I started, you know, I started with a more just an empirical focus on, you know, what the heck was going on in these German trials in the, in the occupation period, you know, 45 to 50, give or take. Um, but I also, you know, started noticing that in the kind of the academic literature on transitional justice, which has mostly been written, as you suggested, by political scientists or by legal scholars, there was a lot of reference to Nuremberg, right, uh, as kind of 
you know, some kind of foundation point or touchstone for transitional justice, but then very little engagement, even with the Nuremberg trials themselves, much less the broader kind of uh, penumbra of trials uh, for Nazi crimes in the immediate post-war period. Transitional justice theory, you know, I mean, A, I should say that, you know, different people have different approaches to the theory, and I'm going to be a little over uh, simplistic here in terms of like unifying a, a diverse field. But broadly speaking, it kind of emerges in the post-Cold War period as a way of trying to make sense of a set of experiences um linked to the end of authoritarian rule, both in places like South America, where you get the end of right-wing dictatorships with the end of the Cold War, and to some degree, the reemergence of international tribunals for the former Yugoslavia, for Rwanda, later on for Sierra Leone or or Cambodia, um, and to really try to make this argument that prosecuting past atrocities by authoritarian regimes um, helps to consolidate a new liberal democracy afterwards, right? That basically, um, if you hold perpetrators of mass atrocities uh, accountable for their crimes that they committed on behalf of uh, an authoritarian state, this helps to promote uh, a transition to democracy. It helps to consolidate liberal values in a post-transition society. Um, And then there's different sort of theories about how these trials actually do that, right? Um, Some people, a a law professor out of Iowa named Mark Osiel has argued that they work in sense because they're liberal show trials, that they um, basically attract a lot of public attention, uh, highlighting the kind of um, propensity for violence and atrocity and torture and mass murder and all of these things that are associated with authoritarianism, that people look at these trials and say, oh my goodness, mass murder is bad. I should become a small D Democrat, right? Um, Other people have a little bit more of an emphasis on deterrence. Catherine Sakink, who's now at Harvard, is kind of most known for this sort of theory that uh, people who might be inclined to overthrow the government, install a right-wing dictatorship and murder political opponents, uh, will look at the experience of trials and say, well, maybe I shouldn't do that because there's a chance if I do that I'll be prosecuted and I'll end up in jail. Uh, and so therefore I, I won't, you know, stage a coup, right? So those I, you know, um, those are the big kind of dimensions, I would say, uh, of um, the way transitional justice is understood either it contributes to some kind of values shift toward in a more democratic direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, by being explicitly pro-democratic, by being explicitly kind of in favor of liberal regimes of rights, or it deters potential authoritarian criminals uh, by by the kind of the usual mechanisms of criminal justice, which is, you know, threatening them with, with uh, punishment if they, you know, behave badly. Yeah. So how do you use sort of this uh, liminal historical moment, right, of, of, kind of occupation and regime change in post-war Germany, right, to sort of um, take that traditional paradigm and, and invert it, right, and kind of flip it on its head. What is your main intervention based on the uh, empirical historical data that you've uncovered? Yeah, so um, I make the argument that Germany between 45 and 49, 50 
is a kind of a natural experiment, right? Because what you have is you have Eastern Germany is occupied by the Soviet Union and ends up becoming a communist dictatorship, pretty nasty one, right? The Western part of Germany is divided into three occupation zones between the Americans, the British, and the French, and ends up becoming um, a successful liberal democracy, right? Both parts of Germany, the Eastern part that becomes a, a communist dictatorship and the Western part that becomes a liberal democracy, prosecute Nazi crimes, right? So you can say that basically transitional justice takes place in both Eastern and Western Germany, right? But the outcomes, the political outcomes are obviously very different, right? Um, in the West, you get a transition to, dem to democracy of the sort that transitional justice theorists envision when they talk about, you know, Chile or Argentina, right? Um, in the East, you get, you know, a transition uh, to authoritarianism, right? You get a transition from one kind of dictatorship to a different kind of dictatorship, but both are dictatorships, right? Both are police states, both use violence and coercion uh, to crush political opposition. Uh, neither of them have free and fair elections. Neither of them have much respect for human rights, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and so what I argue then, A, in the first instance, is that transitional justice is not intrinsically democratizing. Right. You can have transitional justice that helps with the consolidation of a new authoritarian regime. Right. So the East German experience um, is one in which there are a, a lot of trials. Right. 13,000 or so in the occupation period um, that are, um, you know, really important tools for the consolidation of the Stalinist dictatorship in the East. And it's important to note that these are, I would say, these are real transitional justice, right? These are good trials during the occupation period. They have reasonable due process uh, protections for the, the accused. A lot of the judges are not members of the Communist Party. A lot of um, the, the procedures are unchanged from pre-1933 criminal procedures. There's good evidence. The defendants have real defense attorneys. And if you just look in the files, the Russians are constantly complaining that there's too many acquittals, that these uh, defendants are you know, not being punished severely enough. If the Russians are complaining about it, that suggests that these are actually fair trials, right? These are not yet Stalinist show trials where the outcome is preordained, right? Um, and so I make the argument that this is, you know, sort of genuine transitional justice of the sort that advocates and, and legal academics and stuff would advocate in a post-authoritarian situation. But I further argue that they actually play a really substantial and significant role in helping with the consolidation of the new dictatorship in East Germany. Um, they do this in a couple of ways, right? One is they are a good place to kind of check the political reliability of, uh, of legal actors, of lawyers and judges, right? Um, without even making it look like what you're doing is uh, imposing a kind of a communist political line on them, right? You can say, look, we're prosecuting Nazis. Who's opposed to prosecuting Nazis? And if you're not diligent enough, if you're not zealous enough about prosecuting Nazis, 
then you probably shouldn't be a judge or a lawyer in our in our new post-fascist society, which is, you know, not an unreasonable thing to say, except that people who are not zealous about prosecuting Nazis are also unlikely to be good communists. So it's a way of essentially, you know, sec- you know checking on the regime loyalty of the judicial system without it seeming like an authoritarian move, right? Um, these trials also help in that they help the regime draw the line between bad kinds of secret police operations and good kinds of secret police operations. One of the challenges for the Stalinist dictatorship in East Germany is they want to create a secret police state. At the same time, they want to differentiate themselves from the secret police state that the Nazis had created. This is a bit of a rhetorical problem. How do you justify the creation of a police state on the ruins of a police state that you're saying is evil, right? It can't be that we are opposed to police states as such, right? We need some kind of theory for why our police state is good and their police state was bad. Excuse me. Those trials in Eastern Germany were very useful tool for doing that. They could... um, basically articulate a theory of justice in which particularly informants who denounce people to the secret police could be seen as acting in a criminal, unjust manner if the regime they were serving was itself unjust. So if you denounce your neighbor to the Gestapo for listening to the BBC, that is a crime that is unjust because the Gestapo is an agent of a fascist imperialist state that is deeply unjust, right? Uh, and therefore, you know, denouncing your neighbor to that regime is criminal. If now in 1948 or 49, you denounce your colleague at work for, you know, wrecking the five-year plan or for being opposed to uh, work quotas or for organizing um, anti-communist actions in the workplace, right? That's not a criminal denunciation. That's you fulfilling your duty as a citizen of a social state because the state to whom you are denouncing, right, uh, or in this case, proto-state, uh, is itself just, is pursuing a political project of emancipation of the working class, of creating a, uh, a workers' uh, society based on solidarity and prosperity for all. And therefore, um, you know, what, what ends up mattering is the kind of the, the, the regime your denunciations serve rather than the fact of the denunciation itself. Right. And that becomes a very useful framing for the regime in explaining why its sort of network of informers and its secret police operations are just and good, whereas the Nazi network of informers and secret police operations were unjust and bad. So that's that's one major intervention that transitional justice can help a dictatorship without ceasing to be transitional justice. Okay. Now, if I can just keep going, I will talk about what happens in in, in uh, Western Germany. Yeah, the there too, the story of transitional justice is somewhat surprising and somewhat different from what the kind of the more theoretical assumptions would would suggest. Basically, you know, the political scientists and law, law professors, whether they're 
talking about deterrence or whether they're ta- they're talking about cultural values, basically suggest that transitional justice works because it is, um, you know, done for the sake of democratization, right? It is done by democratically inclined liberal lawyers, judges, uh, with the goal of um, of prosecuting and and uh, punishing perpetrators of authoritarian violence, right? In Western Germany during the occupation period, what happens is that um, on the one hand, you have a lot of allied trials uh, for Nazi crimes, which the Germans don't like for the most part. And if you look at polling data and you look at public discourse around these allied trials, what you get from Germans, who are the ones making the democratic transition, right, what you get from them is, is by and large, blanket hostility uh, and a rejection of these allied trials. When you look at the trials in German courts, what you get is something very interesting. You very quickly get um, a discourse that emerges primarily on the part of um, either defense attorneys or judges who are very sympathetic to Nazi defendants who say that prosecuting these people is a violation of their civil rights, basically, right? They argue that in particular, prosecuting people for crimes against humanity is a violation of the prohibition on ex post facto law, right? That that crimes against humanity was not in the German criminal code between 1933 and 1945, and therefore prosecuting somebody for that is, is unjust, right? They make that argument in the in a in a language basically of liberal due process. They say, you know, the rule of law requires that we we not prosecute crimes uh, under ex post facto law. But if you look carefully, you will see that the goal, most times very explicitly for these people, is to make it in fact harder to prosecute Nazi criminals. Right? A lot of these people were themselves Nazis. Um, a lot of them are defense attorneys working on behalf of former Nazis. Some of them are judges who are not Nazis, but who are right-wing nationalists, right, who are deeply involved in political campaigns to secure amnesty for Nazi criminals, to secure the release of Nazi criminals who are imprisoned in uh, foreign countries, right? Uh they sometimes will make the argument that you can prosecute a lot of these crimes under German law, which is tr- without calling them crimes against humanity, which is true enough. But German law has some peculiarities that means it's going to be harder to prove the case and the punishments are going to be milder. So essentially, they're engaged in a project of um, trying to get Nazis off the hook. Right. But they're doing it in a language that highlights the importance of liberal due process. Right. And I argue that one of the things that this does um, is it helps to de-radicalize the right-wing tendencies of German lawyers and judges. If you look at German lawyers and judges going back to the Kaiserreich in the late 19th century, you know, again, overgeneralizing somewhat, but, you know, many of them, a majority, a substantial majority of them are very right-wing. They're very authoritarian. They're very sympathetic to either first the monarchy, then to the the Nazi dictatorship. They're many of in many cases deeply hostile to liberal democracy as that exists in Germany in the 1920s, right? Um, and they they express that hostility to liberal democracy very explicitly, right? Via a rejection of a lot of liberal norms, 
rule of law norms and an embrace of a certain kind of right-wing natural law theory that says there's a certain kind of a vision of justice sometimes explicitly racialized right for um you know the german nation um always couched in terms of nationalism, always couched in terms of the idea that there's some sort of higher value beyond individual rights, right? Um, And therefore, you know, a crucial mass of the judiciary and the legal profession uh, were open opponents of liberal democracy in Germany from, you know, give or take 1870 to 1945. These same people are the ones making these arguments about the liberal rule of law on behalf of Nazis after 1945. The point is not that they suddenly love the rule of the liberal rule of law. The point is that they love Nazis and they want to get them off the hook, but they're doing it in the language of liberal legalism and they box themselves into a rhetorical corner. It becomes very difficult thereafter to do the kind of thing that they did in the 1920s, which is say liberal legalism is a tool of uh, of disruption, of disintegration. It's, it's antithetical to the nation. It is a form of, um, you know, cosmopolitan injustice, right? They can't do that anymore after they spend five years saying we love the liberal rule of law because it helps Nazis, right? And so this kind of um, de-radicalization of the judiciary um you know, which it, which is a result of a cynical strategy to benefit Nazis, um, positions the legal profession in a very different place vis-a-vis democracy after 1945. So it has a democratizing effect, even though it does not have anything remotely like a democratizing intent behind it, right? And so... You know, part of the argument there is even when transitional justice works in the way that the theory suggests it should, which is to promote democracy, at least in the German case, it does so for reasons that are really contradictory to what the theory itself presupposes. Right. So essentially, I argue that the, the theoretical assumptions of transitional justice are problematic at best, wrong at worst for both the Eastern Germany story and the Western German story. It's quite the the ironic narrative, right, of this lustration process that's lustrative perhaps in spite of itself or despite attempts to not make it about um, carrying out justice, they actually end up moving into a more kind of stable democratic norm, right? It's, It's... Really fascinating to see that that play out. Um, I mean, I do think that the um, the law of unintended consequences is one of the the, the firmest laws uh, that exists in, in in human history, right? Yeah, exactly. And the the road to hell, right, being paid with good intentions. Right. Um, I wanted to ask quickly. So you you make a really good point about we ought not sort of retroactively graft uh, later Cold War expectations and biases onto the immediate. Um, trials in the 45 to 50 period. And that also kind of dovetails well with the the notion of how these agents were actually using ex post facto um, claims to try to get their Nazi defendants off the hook, right? How did the um, the debates about the ex post facto nature of a lot of these, these accusations uh, play out differently in the different um, occupations? So not just East, mm-hmm. East and West, but also like British versus French versus American. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
the French and the British, broadly speaking, have no patience uh, for the the German arguments that prosecuting Germans uh, in German courts for crimes against humanity committed during the Third Reich is a violation of of ex post facto law and therefore a violation of kind of the civil rights of of these defendants. Um, Some of that's a different legal culture. Uh, the British in particular uh, have a strong kind of common law tradition that is is pretty comfortable with the idea that crimes can be developed sort of organically through judicial rulings and don't have to have kind of clear articulated statutory basis uh, in written law first. Um, and so some of it's just a, a clash of legal cultures. The Germans are, are very concerned with if it's not written down, it can't it can't have legal applicability, whereas the British are more, you know, again, have this, uh, have a greater comfort level with the idea that judges using precedent from earlier courts can kind of evolve the the law through bench rulings. Um, but it's also, um, let's be honest, the French and the British in particular um, see through this argument uh, and, and see it for a, a cynical the cynical ploy that it is, um, and as an attempt essentially to make it easier for Nazis to to get acquitted, uh, easier for them to get off the hook for for you know particularly denunciations, but other crimes uh, potentially as well. Um, and so part of their hostility to this German argument is is as much political as it is kind of a, a difference in legal cultures. Um, the Americans, on the other hand, interestingly enough. Um, kind of basically agree with the Germans, right? Um, And again, you might say, well, some of that's because the Americans do have, you know, the U.S. Constitution has a prohibition on ex post facto law uh, right there in the Constitution, right? And so on the one hand, you might say, although we do like the British have something of a common law tradition and we are used to kind of uh, law evolving through judicial rulings, we also do have a stronger tradition of opposition to ex post facto lawmaking. And I think there's some element of truth to that, but I also think that um, the Americans are, you know, well, two two points. First is it's ironic that the Americans buy that because the Americans are the ones who really push for this category of crimes against humanity to be developed in the first place in the run-up to Nuremberg. And they're the ones who actively use it in their own courts uh, in the so-called successor trials that are also held at Nuremberg under American uh, military tribunals. Right, So the Americans themselves in their own courts when prosecuting Nazi crimes uh, were very comfortable with prosecuting uh, crimes against humanity and had no sympathy for these arguments about that being an ex post facto category, right? So it's ironic then that they would, when they come time to dealing with the Germans, they'd say, oh, well, yeah, you know, I guess it is ex post facto after all, even though we were just saying it isn't, right? So that's one ironic part about the Americans. But I think the Americans are actually ironically pretty invested in the idea of kind of Germans learning democratic self-rule from the ground up. And they're less comfortable than the British about kind of imposing their will on the Germans as an occupying power um, and are more solicitous, essentially, of local German actors than the British. In part, I think, because they think that that will um, legitimize uh, the occupation uh, that will get more secure, more buy-in from the Germans for occupation policies, and will help the Germans learn 
to govern themselves in a non-authoritarian manner, right? So I think that the Americans, um, it's not just that they're naive and they're taken in by some, some, you know, clever German lawyers. Uh, Americans have clever lawyers too. Um, right. It's, it's some combination of, they actually are more sympathetic to the arguments that the Germans are making in principle. And they have a rather different view than the British or the French about what's going to have a democratizing impact on Germany itself. Okay, great. Yeah. Thank you for providing some of the on the ground kind of granular detail there. I wanted to. Can I actually jump in and say something really fast before you move to the next question? Yeah, absolutely. Be clear, make sure that any listeners understand the limits of what I'm saying in terms of these outcomes, East and West, right? That East Germany was going to become a communist dictatorship, you know, was going to happen with or without criminal trials for Nazi perpetrators, right? I mean, there were, you know, tens of thousands of Russian troops occupying Eastern Germany that were going to, you know, make sure of this outcome. And similarly in West Germany, right, um, that it was going to become some kind of more or less liberal democracy was also largely dictated by the facts of the occupation on the ground. So I'm not making a case that the um, these criminal trials are um, a necessary and sufficient condition for the political outcomes, right? Um, They're definitely not a sufficient condition, and they're probably not even really a necessary condition, right? You probably have a similar outcome politically on either side of the Iron Curtain with or without these trials, but how things happen matters as much as whether they happen at all, right? Um, And if we want to understand the mechanisms of political transition and the kind of the the role that law can play in those sorts of processes, um, we need to have this more nuanced and, and empirically grounded study of the actual process of transition as it unfolds on the ground. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for the clarification. I think you make that, um, very clear throughout the book about kind of what it is you are doing and not overstating something you're not doing, right? Which is which is great. Speaking about this this notion of um, whether or not trials do make it to court or whether a case makes it to even makes it to trial, right? You provide a a very intimate, close reading in one of your chapters of a um, on the ground tragic case study of a German crime at the end of the war. Um, and the failure to achieve justice for it after the war. Could you sort of run us through this human story you provide and what your objectives were in devoting a chapter to a case that did not result in a trial? Mm-hmm. Sort of like what, um, sort of both what conceptual and, and or methodological moves are you making with this with this chapter? So again, you know, so at a, at a methodological level, one of the things I'm trying to do in that chapter is um, make the case that when we're talking about transitional justice, we ha- it's as important to look at the trials that don't happen, what doesn't get prosecuted, as it is to look at the cases that actually come to trial um, that result in a conviction, right? Uh, in, in the same way that in a domestic criminal justice system, right, if there, is, if there are certain kinds of crimes that are systematically under-prosecuted, you want to know that in order to understand how that, that criminal justice system works. What, what isn't making it to trial uh, and why is um, an important part of any story of transitional justice, 
right? Um, not every case is going to make it to trial. Um, and especially if those cases don't make it to trial for reasons that aren't strictly legal, right? Or strictly based on the evidence, that's that's important to know, right? So I, I look at this one case from Berlin um, as an example of a, an instance where you know, the evidence seems to, on the face of it, suggest that there would have been a pretty strong criminal case to be made, right? That at a minimum, an indictment would have been warranted. You know, you never know what happens when things get into a courtroom, but there's, you know, strong prima facie evidence that that crimes were committed and that, that the police have some reasonable idea of who committed them, right? Um and yet it doesn't go to trial. So I go through sort of the case itself and, and talk about what happens and what the evidence is and why it looks like there's a pretty good case to be made that this should have gone to trial, should have at least been indicted. And then I talk about why it wasn't, right? So the case involves um, a, a Czech-Jewish translator named Hans Hahnemann, who was living in Berlin at the end of World War II probably very likely living in a so-called mixed marriage with a non-Jewish German, which is why he wasn't dead already. Um, as the, the Russian attack on Berlin is sort of just getting underway, he ends up, uh, through circumstances, he gets trapped by the fighting uh, in, a, in a different part of town from where he lives. He hides out with a friend of the family a non-Jewish friend of the family, which is already interesting to suggest that there's some level of connections uh, still existing between the Jewish population of Berlin and the non-Jewish population of Berlin in May of 1945. Um, During a lull in the fighting, he leaves this friend's apartment to try to see if it's safe to make his way back to his own home where his family is. Um, he encounters a crowd of ordinary Germans kind of mulling around in the streets outside the apartment building, also trying to figure out, you know, what's going on, where are the Russians, where's the, what's the state of the fighting. Um, he asks them if they, you know, if they have any information about where, where the fighting is going on and whether it's safe to make his way back to his neighborhood. And the neighbors all get suspicious, right? Uh, again, some of the details are a little unclear, but he, he probably had a Czech accent. Right. Uh, definitely didn't have a Berlin accent, at least. Um, they ask to see his papers. They start accusing him of being a Jewish spy. They um, uh, they start acting, um, pretending to be police, some of them. Right? They take him back to the friend's house. The friend says, no, he's not a spy. He's an old friend. He's he's legit. And then these some of these neighbors are like, okay, we'll help you to Hanuman. We'll help you get to your neighborhood. We'll we'll escort you out of our neighborhood to the boundaries and you can get back to your neighborhood from there. Right. So reluctantly, after they've been accusing him of being a spy and a Jew, which he he was Jewish, right? They, uh, he goes with them because he feels like he has no choice. They get to a checkpoint, a military checkpoint, and um, one or more of them denounce him as a Jew to the SS manning this checkpoint, There's and he's killed. Um, it's possible that he was killed by the SS. There's some evidence to suggest he might have actually been killed by one of the neighbors who denounced him to the SS. The evidence is a little unclear there. But you've got a lot of witness statements in the files. Um, 
attesting to this notion that at least some of these neighbors were involved in denouncing Hahnemann to the SS, uh, that he was killed as a result of that denunciation. Um, and again, so I think there's, there's, you know, really good kind of preliminary evidence to suggest that, you know, you could bring pretty strong criminal charges. The prosecutor in charge of the case, a guy named Wilhelm Kunest, uh, doesn't think so, right? Uh, he, he looks at these files and there's a, a, a very chilling line. Uh, this is in, um, 1948 or 49. I believe it's 48. People should read, go out and buy and read my book to double check the dates. I'm, I'm blanking off the top of my head, but, uh, 48 or 49, he's doing this investigation. Uh, the police investigation, he gets the files, right? He looks at this and he's got all these witness testimonies saying so-and-so was involved and here's what happened. And, and he looks at this and he says, yeah, you know, so long has passed from the crime in question that we can't really possibly prosecute something like this still today. This is three years after the end of the war, right? This is like, um, this is not a huge long time uh, frame. It's very clear that Kunest doesn't want to prosecute Nazis, right? Um, He's looking for really any excuse that he can come up with uh, to to not indict people uh, for for Nazi crimes. Um, The Russians and the East German communists, so this is happening in Berlin and it's happening in the Soviet occupation zone of Berlin, um, you know, are not unjustifiably really irate uh, about this ruling on his part. Um, the Russians even uh, at one point then arrest him uh, in a very Cold War caper kind of way. He manages to escape. He he, uh, he gets to take a, a sort of a morning walk to visit his wife's grave, uh, which happens to be in a graveyard right on the border with West Berlin. And he literally just sprints across the border and kind of like throws himself on the ground and screams for help. And American MPs come and, and uh, they send the East German guards packing and, uh, and he escapes to West Germany. Um, where he gives indignant uh, interviews to the press about how he's a victim of political persecution, and this is an example of how these how these trials are really useful for the emerging dictatorship in East Germany, right? I mean, Kunest was not a good guy, right? He was, you know, he was an anti-communist. He would not have been a reliable prosecutor for the new regime. Um, you know, he outs himself in a sense in that regard in this case. Uh, but he manages to do it in a way that actually makes the East Germans look like the good guys, right? I mean, they're the ones, you know, sticking up for the principle that murderers should be prosecuted even a whole three years after the crime in question, right? Uh, and and so he's sort of, you know, so obviously a Nazi sympathizer, right? And such a kind of an unsavory character in his own right uh, that, um, you know, them essentially using this case as a pretext to purge him for, you know, also political reasons, but it doesn't look like that's what's going on. It looks like, you know, they're, they're sticking up for justice here. And so that's one of the ways in which these trials end up becoming really helpful for the East German communists, even when they don't actually come to trial. Great. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I would say that's, you know, the number of, of ironic kind of, procedural and process-based kind of claims here are really, really interesting to, to tease out. 
Um, and I recommend everyone go go read the book uh, to get more of those more of those great stories. I want to kind of um, wrap things up here by asking. So you you this book does a really great kind of historical reality check for traditional transitional justice theory, right? Problematizing the foundational assumptions of that very concept. What then do we as scholars or society more broadly um, stand to gain from this corrective to the standardized model of transitional justice? So a couple of things. I mean, I think the first thing uh, is that, you know, kind of one size fits all models of politics or law, you know, tend not to fit. Right. Um, You know, every case is is a little bit different Um, and you can't um, cookie cutter things. Right. Um, And I think that especially on the activist side of things, um, you know, transitional justice NGOs and, you know, UN agencies and stuff tend to come into any kind of post-conflict situation and say, we've got a model for this. Right. Uh, and, and, and here's what it is. And we're going to just kind of bring this in and we're going to like plop it down in the middle of, of this new context. And it's going to work just like it did in every other context. And, um, you know, that often doesn't work very well. I mean, you know, if, if one you know, wants to think of a more contemporary example, the so-called mixed tribunal for uh, Cambodia, which, you know, ended up being deeply controversial and, and sparking, you know, resignations of judges uh, on accusations of political interference, et cetera, et cetera, right, suggests that something like, oh, we're going to just bring Nuremberg to Cambodia, right? it didn't go well. Right. And I think, you know, just as a general rule, modesty about the applicability of kind of abstract theoretical models to concrete real world cases um, is, is always warranted. Right. Don't assume that just because something worked once um, that it'll work a second time or work the same way in a different context. And again, I'm suggesting it didn't even work in this context the way that people who advocate this model think it did, right? Uh, and and so, you know, it's kind of, in that sense, a double. Be modest about the value of your model in different contexts. And in this case, your model doesn't even explain the thing that it was intended to explain in the first place, right? Um so that's that's kind of one intervention is is that you know we want to have a little bit of a kind of, of, of theoretical modesty uh, when when thinking about these things. I think the second point to make is that um, that doesn't mean that justice broadly construed or prosecutions for uh, mass atrocities are worthless or are um, sort of secondary to political processes, you know, uh, or that we should just give up on the the basic idea and just focus on, you know, sort of political transitions in a purely kind of instrumental political sense. I do think that it's important and valuable and, and meaningful to prosecute people for you know, mass atrocities and genocide and, and torture and uh, political repression. But I think it's important to do that because it's the right thing to do. Whether it will or will not help uh, with a desired political outcome, who knows, right? Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. If it does, it might do it for completely 
unexpected and maybe even unsavory reasons, right? I mean, the fact that these trials for Nazi crimes um, helped with the consolidation of a pretty nasty Stalinist dictatorship in East Germany doesn't mean they shouldn't have happened, right? It was still good and valuable that Nazis were put in jail for, for you know, murdering people, right? Um, even if the political outcome uh, wasn't what, you know, anybody looking at it from a kind of a liberal democratic perspective would have, would have wanted. Right. Um, and so, you know, justice in a sense is its own reward and instrumentalizing it for the purposes of a desired political transition, um, risks cheapening justice itself, I think. Um, and, and so I think that's the other kind of big kind of, um, theoretical take-home point that I would, uh, want to make. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's, um, it's, it's really great to see the kind of the historical case study here or both case studies, um, give us a more detailed take on kind of the, the convergences and divergences between law and justice and law as procedure versus law as, um, sort of result. Right. Um, so lastly, I just want to ask, uh, what are your plans for your next project? What's, what's next on the docket? Yeah. So, um, I'm finishing up a project editing, uh, the fourth volume of the Cambridge history of the Holocaust on the aftermath, sort of aftermath and legacies. So that's, that's should be done relatively soon, knock on wood. Um, the next big kind of research and writing project I'm doing is a kind of an account of law, human rights, and mass atrocity in the making of the modern world. So really kind of, again, in the sense of like getting a little bit bigger with each project, um, really kind of looking at the way that the use of law to regulate large-scale political violence right? War, mass atrocity, genocide, right? The way law has been used to regulate that for the last 400, 500 years or so uh, has been part and parcel of constructing a certain kind of political, social, and normative order for the world um, that itself has you know, sort of evolved and changed over time. Uh, and looking really then at, you know, on the one hand, a period uh, in the late Middle Ages and the early modern period where this was really about regulating religious conflict, um, both between Christian sects within Europe, but also then looking at the conflict with Islam uh, in particular as, as another crucial kind of context for thinking about, you know, basically who can you kill and when uh, without it being a crime, right? Uh, then I'm going to move into the imperial colonial period of the 18th, 19th centuries, right? Uh, and then take it into the 20th century and connect it up with the creation of a bipolar uh, superpower conflict, Cold War context, and then wrap it up with the new, with a, well, probably two chapters, one on the, the brief period of the new world order of the 1990s in the aftermath of the Cold War when people really did have some very utopian expectations for what law could do. Uh, in terms of, of regulating mass violence and bringing peace to the world, et cetera, et cetera. And then the post 
period where we see a kind of the emergence of a, of a new world disorder, uh, the, the potential, you know, the decline, perhaps long-term decline of American global dominance. And, and with it then what people sometimes, um, I think, you know, over-optimistically called a rules-based national international order, uh, you know, how that itself was tied up with a very specific kind of power configuration that as that power configuration fades, so too does this expectation that rules um, govern order. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's great to see you kind of apply this comparative approach from this book to new um, temporal and geographical context. So that'll be really exciting to, to see. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, we'll chat with you next. All right. Thank you.